Hello, yeah. guests. Welcome back to another World of Wargaming episode of MCA Scuttlebutt. Today, I have a returning guest, Ian Brown, but as well also um, Sebastian Bay, who is a wargame designer with the Center for Naval Analysis. Gentlemen, how are you today? Good. Go ahead, it's good Ian. to be back. Yeah, uh, no, it's good. Uh, Will, appreciate you having me back on here uh, for another thing. I love the World of Wargaming series. I'm glad you guys are doing it. So happy to be back in a slightly different capacity. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, so we're going to start off um, just quickly, Ian. Uh, you've been on the show before, but to some of our new listeners, do you mind just doing a quick introduction of yourself? Yeah, sure. Last time I was on, I was uh, Major Ian Brown. Now I'm just Mr. I retired from the Marine Corps this summer, and uh, I was at the crew, you know, crew Life Center. I was there last time we spoke. Obviously, I'm not there anymore, although um, I'm happy to say they sort of kept me on in an unofficial capacity as a distinguished fellow. So I can still go and, uh, and do things for them, which is great. And then right now I work at Group W as a war game analyst. Awesome. Um, and Sebastian, since you're uh, new to our show, do you mind just providing some uh, context to who you are in, uh, to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Sebastian Bay. I'm a senior game designer and research uh, scientist at the Center for Naval Analysis, also known as CNA. Um, I also serve as an adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown Center for Security Studies in the School of Foreign Service, where I teach a game design course where my students design, research, and develop an original educational war game, often for DOD sponsors. Um, I also was a former uh, Krulak fellow at MCU when Ian was there as an action officer uh, when his days in uniform. And I also am the faculty advisor and founder of the Georgetown University Wargaming Society. All right, that's awesome. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. So let's uh, kick it off today. Um, the topic of the conversation today for our audience is going to be just a general overview and history of the application of wargaming in the Marine Corps. So. Uh, what so let's go let's go to day one how did wargaming become introduced to the marine corps hey ian you want to take the first swing uh yeah sure um so i, I before we get too far i think uh it, we're probably gonna like over you know miss some stuff here and there so if our audiences want like kind of the full story um the article that, that our research is kind of based off on appeared in the journal of advanced military studies um volume two um 2021 and um, so uh, any all the footnotes, fancy pictures and stuff, if you want to get into those, um, that's where you can find the article. The article is called Promise Unfulfilled, A Brief History of Educational Wargaming in the Marine Corps. So um, I, I guess like trying to figure out like wargaming started in the Marine Corps um, was kind of part of our reason for doing this because, you know, there was obviously a lot of energy about it when General Berger took over as commandant. And uh, I, but I think like kind of both Sebastian and I knew from our, our various backgrounds, like we'd sort of been here before. So in the Marine Corps, like lots of excitement and then it sort of didn't stick. That's it's a word we use a lot. Like it just didn't institutionally, it didn't stick, you know, it kind of ebbed and flowed. So we kind of wanted to like trace the thread back to the beginning as best we could find it in terms of, you know, the documented history and then offer some thoughts on like, okay, how do we get it to stick this time? Cause it seems like, you know, it's it's great, lots of excitement, resources being applied. Um, but let's make it last, you know, beyond a few years. Um, so where did the Marine Corps start wargaming? Um, sort of lost in uh, a little bit in the the midst of time, but we did find some interesting things. And among that was that, um, not really surprising, was that sort of the genesis of Marine Corps wargaming, uh, very closely tied to uh, what the Naval War College was doing in wargaming, really going back to the beginning of the 20th century. 
Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the uh, uh, the sort of interwar years between World War One, World War Two, um, war games and Naval War College undertook that were very informative um, and influential on the American uh, leaders, naval leaders who would be fighting, especially in the Pacific in World War Two. Um, you know, but as it happens, like Marine Corps as a naval service, um, their thread sort of goes through the story there a little bit. Um, you know, so in the article, we kind of went back to like uh, the beginning of wargaming. The Naval War College was kind of started in the, around 1884 um, when the War College was founded. There was a Captain William McCarty Little who started running these things called War Problems. And from there, uh, a few different game sets were introduced to the, the, the Navy students who went through there going from like a kind of a one-on-one -on -one contest test between individual ships all the way up to movement of multiple fleets across huge geographic areas. Um, and over time, um, the, the Naval War College kind of honed in on the latter two sort of into like fleet on fleet and multiple fleets versus multiple fleets. Um, you know, but sort of uh, adjacent to this, um, Every now and then we sort of found in the historiography, you know, references to Marines being present at these games. And I think the the earliest documented reference that that we could find, I, I owe to, I don't know if he's listening, but B.J. Armstrong, who is a Navy officer today, and he's also a historian, published author as well. But he said, you know, I, I forget what we were talking about. I think it was a different historical topic because he had published a book called uh, on sort of naval guerrilla warfare, small boats and daring men. But in the course of that, he had been going into the Admiral Sims uh, papers archive in the National Archives up in DC. So, you know, he's talking about that. And I think we, um, Sebastian and I had already sort of decided to start going off on this. He said, oh, you got to look at the Sims archives because I found there's like this poem about Pete Ellis. And I don't remember what it said, but like it talked about him at the Naval War College doing their Naval War game. Um, you should go check it out. So I did, and I, it turned out in the Sims, like this is something that we never would have found on our own had not BJ sort of put us on, on the line to that. But I'm so glad that he did because to my knowledge, again, first documented reference we could find of a Marine doing wargaming. And what it is, it's, it's a limerick. It's, it's like something you would, you know, say it's sort of a, a drunken mess night with your friends. Um, but it, it, it's a limerick about Pete Ellis. And if you'll bear with me, I want to read it because I just this, I love this story as the first documented reference um, about Pete Ellis kind of being being pretty good at it. Um, and it goes, there's a frisky Marine they call Ellis whose ability makes some folks jealous. He's a soldier. All right. But a tactical blight. He can plot on the board. So your fleet's always bored. He can hand you a whack from a torpedo attack. And with lethal elation, he'll quell us. Um, so. You know, beginning, um, Marine Corps was uh, clearly plugged in with what the War College was doing at the time, and it turned out we were pretty good at it back then. Um, and as we sort of dug through the historiography later on, we started seeing more and more references to Marine Corps officers being adjacent and being present at some of these games as students. Um, so that was, uh, that was kind of the, the earliest beginning we could find. Um, I don't know, Sebastian, anything you want to add about that or the... Yeah. the, the so would it be appropriate to say that Pete Ellis is one of like the forefathers of Marine Corps wargaming? Uh, so I'm. <laughs> so before uh, Ian says anything, I would say um, I don't think I would go so far as that saying that uh, Pete Ellis was definitely a seminal figure in the Marine Corps. Uh, as we look backwards, uh, he becomes 
more important as we think about his writings and, and the time. Um, but in terms of wargaming, um, the, the origin story for the Marine Corps is sort of like Ian has said, sort of lost the time. Um, when we were doing this research paper originally for MCU um, and the journal issue at JAMS, uh, we went down several like your articles at the Gazette, uh, looking at old Sam's, uh, old EWS papers um, and so forth, and trying to find this path through citations and footnotes and references to each other. Um, and the first real solid institutional reference that we could find at least uh, in our research was back, I think, in 1960, when the Marine Corps established the Marine Corps Landing Force Development Center, which later would become uh, the War Games Group and then later morphed into the War Games branch, and then eventually what we call like McWill and the Wargaming Division today, right? So there was like this loose connection between all those organizations as they slowly morphed. Um, and you know what I mean? It's hard to say who would be the forefather, but right around 1960 is usually when uh, the Marine Corps really institutionalized wargaming. Um, and it was institutionalized specifically to look at how the Marine Corps could uh, develop amphibious warfare, right? So this is after World War II, uh, this is after Korea, uh, and looking towards the Marine Corps sort of uh, advantage. And for those who are aware of Marine Corps history, is like this is also like around the time where the Marine Corps sort of solidified its amphibious role in like congressional legislation, right? So this is sort of that beginning of that chapter of the Marine Corps' identity. So who were so for for our audience? Who were some of these players uh, starting in 1960s when the Marine Corps really, for I guess for the, uh, I is it correct to say for the first time started taking war game more seriously, at least as an individual service? Um, who were some of the players and 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 key movers uh, of this war gaming push? So when we were looking yes, back through the research, um, I we we found all. We didn't find references to like who the directors were, and I, at least uh, we didn't go down that route of finding uh, the exact individuals who ran these. Uh, often we found them in reference in other articles. Uh, for example, like one of the first things we found about the Landing Force War Game uh, that was originally developed by the Landing Force Development uh, Center um, was by a captain, like Captain Montague, um, in his amphibious warfare school, like study, like his like his thesis for school, uh, and he referenced how. Wargaming could be used for the fleet marine force, right? And this was like dated 1965 or 66. And he's like, hey, like this new center has been set up. This is how we can be used. And the game, uh, the Landing Force War game or LFWG, was originally used predominantly for analysis, um, wasn't used for education. So his big push was like, hey, we should also include wargaming as education. A theme that you'll see later uh, repeat over and over again, like games being used for analysis, and then there was a push for education and so forth, right? So there's always this tension and sort of um, symbiosis, but the analysis often tends to be the leading element uh, because there's often the money and the institutional prerogatives all there but and we can talk more about the game later but i don't know if any, ian has anything to add um yeah no like uh, as sebastian said sort of you know finding who the by name forefather was um was difficult and a, a lot of information we got was sort of adjacent to the things that were going on um which uh, which, which was sort of ironic because the, you know the marine corps historically has done a very good job of documenting its own history uh, but this was something that just had not uh, received a lot of attention. Um, but yeah, in terms of the um, you know the the nature of the 
the landing force war game. It, you know, again, something we had in the article, I think Sebastian found sort of like a, a flow chart for how it worked. Um, you, you, we kind of go on, there's sort of a reason why this particular type of game didn't get more widespread adoption um, at the time. And, and part of that was because it was, as Sebastian said, designed for analysis. So not necessarily designed with the user interface for a, um, I don't, I'm not say a casual player, you know, but somebody who's not, who's not there to spend weeks at a time doing analysis. Um, it, it, it was a very, it was a highly detailed game, which also made it highly complicated. And uh, I think one of the sources had said to, to replicate 24 hours of combat operations in the game took you six months. Um, so that's a little, that's a bit of a challenge, you know, as something to widely disseminate, to plug into very tight, you know, training schedules for operating force units. Um, you know, you could have as much enthusiasm as you wanted, but you go tell the boss, yeah, we're going to war game and it's going to take us, you know, the entire day to go through five minutes of game time. Uh, that's, that's not a, that's not an easy sell. So, so where does it go from there? So after the Latin Forces War game and this sort of push for education, the Marine Corps responded with a great title called The Educational War Game. Uh, no joke, they called it The Educational War Game. Um, and it is cited in a bunch of um, you know, amphibious warfare schools, uh, papers, and also junior and senior school papers and other uh, Marine Corps Gazette articles and sort of forth um, as like the push to add more wargaming back into the sort of the captain's course for what we call EWS and amphibious warfare school at the time. And it was uh, really just a, a semi-simplified version of the landing forces war game. Uh, it had a lot of the core mechanics the same, the rules were a lot of it transported. Um, if it still rests on this notion of issuing a series of orders and being adjudicated by these sort of tables. So both the educational war game um, and the landing forces war game used like uh, uh, combat tables. Like think of it as like, hey, if I have X number of tanks and I'm firing at this range, like what do I, like what is my probability of hit? It also had like probability of detections um, and all these sort of like complex uh, tables to sort of help with determining the effects of combined arms. Um, and the, the, one of the cool elements of these games was like it had notions of like how long it takes for something to be issued and followed as a unit. Um, so it had all these really interesting elements to it and it borrowed. Uh, uh, pretty heavily from like wargaming mechanics that were commercially available. So like if you think about the 60s and 70s and 80s were sort of the high the high upturn of gaming commercially. And this sort of represented that as well. So like we'll talk about it a bit later, but commercial wargaming really sort of peaked in the 70s and 80s where uh, another series of games came out in the Marine Corps as well. So is this movement, um... I guess more is is it more bottom up as in you see a lot of like younger officers or captains or lower lower level officers trying to promote this thing up, or is this like a are these are they these generals or the commandant trying to push this wargaming down to the force? Um, so I I think kind of until, or really arguably until you got into the '90s, it was there was sort of pressure there was pressure from the bottom. And sometimes from the middle as well. Um, you know, for example, the um, you know the Marine Corps Warfighting, sorry, the Marine Corps Landing Forces Development Center and their Landing Force War Game. You know, that that wasn't just a bunch of you know lieutenants and captains getting together and and trying to push from the bottom up. You know, that was a you know a, I, I'm not sure that I don't know the scale of the center itself. You know, but that was a headquarters Marine Corps entity that decided to you know 
build a war game for a certain purpose. Um, you know, but but a, a lot of the I think the energy going into the the quote unquote gold age really was from the bottom up, and um, you know, it was <clears throat> we talk about in the essay a lot of the sources you read you look at like the ranks and titles of the authors and it's you know it's it's captains and majors and some lieutenants um you know who are really you know both they're the most vocal about it um making recommendations about it but also sort of also asking up to higher like give us something to sort of scratch this itch because we think this could be really really useful for our own professional development and that of our marines and is, is there institutional pushback? I mean, because you mentioned, you know, there's sort of a heyday around, you said, the late 70s, 80s. Um, and what, how, why doesn't it expand at, at that time and point? So I would say the educational war game itself that was spun, spun off from the Atlantic Forces war game uh, failed for all of the same reasons. The Atlantic Force war game in itself did not expand further than like sort of headquarters Marine Corps and the, the main wargaming branch uh, because it was too hard to run the rules were too complex and it was way too granular right um so even though the educational war game was simplified it was already starting off from a really complex point and wasn't simple enough to be disseminated outwards to the force right um this is not say these games weren't good right the the game was originally designed um to be um an analytical war game to help the marine corps really think through amphibious warfare in the 60s um and the way to answer your first question or your last question would be is it was a top-down push to a certain point right um and then you saw this sort of or at least we see uh signs of young captains young majors uh and even some lieutenant colonels of saying like hey the war game institutionally has been pushed down to this echelon right but we think it should go all the way down right and there there's this, there's this call and effort of saying hey how do we pull this down further and further down to our echelons right uh, because they see benefit at the higher echelons and now we want it all the way down right um and then i would say that that push and that um uh, also probably a series of institutional elements uh really led to uh the 70s boom right uh of marine corps wargaming what me and ian in the article called like the golden age right with like parentheses right because um which is like where the tac war family of games came out which was um often referred to as a series or a family um there are four distinct games uh as part of this uh tac war family of games uh tac war which was a company level war game um a battalion level war game called uh, steel thrust and this was sort of think of what we consider a, a modern mu game a battalion landing team sort of game right um and then landing force was for what they call regiments or what uh um or brigade level sort of uh staffs uh and then the strategic level game uh what we call the meth right it was, the game was called warfare so think of this sort of as a pyramid of games right for different echelons um uh the game changes and morphs so like tack war is much more similar to what most people think of war games is like miniature figures and counters on maps and like very tactical focus of like how far can i see how far can i shoot how far can i see you sort of thing uh designing sort of um your know, captains and lieutenants at that tactical problem and then as you move from tack war to steel thrust to landing force to warfare the games become more and more like uh staff x's right like exercises where they're still playing games there's still map elements to it 
but it's more and more about like how do we operate as a staff how do we conduct these actions how do we issue orders how do we manage the operational art as we call it today right and it was more like a cpx right um but there are elements of it but the idea was of the tack war family of games was to push these games out to every echelon uh, as deep and uh, as deep as the company level uh, for the game for their appropriate level, right? Because the educational war game was sort of took this mentality of like this one game will be the the game for everyone, right? Um, and in the seventies, the Marine Corps is like maybe that's not the right way, right? And they're like, hey, we're gonna think of a, a game for each sort of major echelon of the Marine Corps, right? So if you're a captain, you're playing top war, right? But if you are a major or lieutenant colonel on a staff, right, on a mew or um, or mef or meb, you apply playing steel thrust or landing force, right? Um, if you're probably at headquarters Marine Corps or at the MEF staff, you're playing, playing warfare, right? Each of those sort of tailored to the perspectives and decisions that they are looking at the world and the operational and tactical problems they're looking at. Um, I pass it over to Ian to add any you know, reinforcing remarks. Yeah, so I, I think with the talking through the tag war stuff, um, you know, we'll back to your original point, you know, where did the drive come from? You know, to, to give credit where credit is due, you know, Attack War and the, the family of games, they, they were disseminated around the service. And um, I think the, the goal, they, it was first created around 1981, and the goal was that every rifle company in the Marine Corps would have a copy by 1983. You know, that's a lot of rifle companies. Um, and so that's that's something that had a would have had to have sort of service-level resourcing um, and distribution to actually make that happen. Um, but what I think is interesting here, and, and there's a couple other things to mention in this golden age, you know, quote unquote, as well, which is, uh, you know, dissemination of tack war, but also as we get into the 80s, this is when, um, you know, computing power is starting to become more, more widely available to a wider audience, right? Uh, you know, so not everybody's got a personal computer on their desk yet in the 1980s, but computers are, are now like, no longer just the purview of like getting people on the moon kind of thing, right? They they can be used by slightly lower entities and they don't cost as much. So sort of adjacent to the dissemination of TAC War as a tabletop uh, family of games, you saw the Marine Corps start to look at also, hey, what can we do with computers? Um, so uh, Marine Corps, uh, they borrowed something that the Navy had already built called the Tactical Warfare Simulation Evaluation and Analysis System and uh, spun off sort of their own variant called the Marine Air Ground Task Force Tactical Warfare Simulation, or MTWAS, um, which is a variation that's still in use today, actually. Um, you know, so the, these are things that it's not just, a, you know, a, a captain or some rogue colonel over at the warfighting lab, you know, sending sending hundreds of copies of TAC War out to the entire fleet or, you know, buying a multi-million dollar computer system to run MTWAS. Uh, you know, so that they're there had to have been some some top-down level decision-making in terms of the resourcing all of this. Although interestingly as well, um, I don't think we could find in our research sort of like the big names who were the ones who signed off on this. Like, you know, who was the general that signed off on um, on building TAC War and fielding it or, you know, buying TAC or buying MTWAS and, and upgrading the code. And I think more importantly, something else our article talks about is is not just buying this stuff, but encouraging and like mandating slash giving 
top-down power to use this and devote time out of your busy training schedule to use these things. And it, in, based on our research, it really wasn't until the late 90s um, that a commandant sort of comes into the picture and gives that top-down authority to, you know, not just resource these things, but use them. And that was when General Charles Krulak, when he was commandant, signed um, Marine Corps Order 1500.55 titled Military Thinking and Decision-Making Exercises, which essentially said, um, you, you not only you can go forth and do wargaming, I want you to, uh, I am going to allow you to do it on government computers even, uh, which in this day and age, like, you know, I can't think of putting a copy of, you know, uh, uh, Fortnite on a government computer right now, right? Like, it's not going to happen. But uh, General Kulak encouraged that. And he even, um, one of the things that came out under him was uh, a, com a modification of the game Doom 2, first-person shooter called Marine Doom, which, you know, put on, you know, put um, new avatars and skins for Marine Corps, you know, uniforms, equipment, and weapons. Um, you know, so that, like, that was sort of the... the top-down cover um, that that hadn't really come in terms of the authorities and permissions to use these things down a, you know down through the lowest level and devote time to it. Um, unfortunately, it was kind of about the time the general, and, and interesting note, that Marine Corps order uh, 1500.55 still shows as an active order under the list of Marine Corps orders if you go onto their website. Um, you know, so never rescinded. So we've always had the authority to play Doom on our computers, apparently. Um, but it was right around the time that, like, General Krulak pushed this out where I think we also kind of identified uh, the, the mission creep uh, that has often under, undermined past wargame activities started sneaking into these systems. Um, so, Sebastian, I'll hand it back to you if you want to talk a little bit about how that mission creep started affecting the, the enthusiasm and use of wargamings. Yeah, so... Uh, Tac War was you know, originally built in like 74, uh, 74, 75. Uh, it was like what Ian mentioned, disseminate to the force along with other games later in, in the Marine Corps. And was it M-Tours was like, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, this also coincided with the use of tactical decision games in the Marine Corps Gazette. You know I mean, so like there was a lot of his history blending over um, and... It was really interesting to see and sort of trace this, but also at the same time, you see this sort of inflection in the late 80s of sort of being more critical of TAC war, right? Because um, as we'd mentioned before, like TAC war was a response to the one uh, model fits all sort of model for educational and analytical gaming. Um, and But then um, mission creep happened, right? Like they wanted to make tack war more and more, uh, responsive, more granular, more reflective of reality. And it was this push to make it, uh, do more. Right. So like, for instance, tack war, the company version had like originally only had one basic module and then it had an amphibious module and had a desert module and each of these rules and terrains, um, sort of required more rules, right. Uh, to the point that it became more and more laborious to run, right? It became harder for company commanders to run these things and it became harder and harder, right? Uh, so you'll see like a string of um, Marine Corps Gazette articles uh, by you know, uh, Walters and others uh, extolling commercial gaming because they were uh, saying these games are more accessible, easier to do, um, while at the same time saying Tac War, which was the official Marine Corps war game for education, was increasingly difficult, and they found it, found it to be limiting, right? So eventually, 
Um, there's this sort of rise and fall with it. Um, the GWAT happens in the early 2000s, and that also sort of shifts the eye away from sort of educational and analytical wargaming, amphibious warfare, or maritime moves and all that jazz. Um, and one thing before I talk to, uh, one thing before I hand it back to Ian is like, it didn't mean like wargaming went away during the GWAT years. Like uh, the Marine Corps Gazette and Atomic Games and the Marine Corps partner up to create a, a version uh, called Close Combat Marine in 2004, um, based off a commercial digital game called Close Combat, right? Um, and it was supposed to be like a replacement, right? It was supposed to reproduce the TAC war successes, right? Um, to the point that like uh, people would say like, hey, like they gave out free CDs like attached to Gazette articles, right? Uh, Gazette manual magazines, and like it just didn't have the same success. Um, and we couldn't say why exactly. A part of it's probably the focuses of Iraq and Afghanistan at the time, but also like it just institutionally the, the Marine Corps just did not care as much, nor did it uh, give the institutional cover to you know focus on these things, right? Um, but then you know I mean uh, it's sort of boom and bust cycle of uh, gaming happens. Uh, but they were also like uh, signs of it being used, right? Like. Um, Brendan McBean, who was a major at the time, like you'll see a a, a little like a SOP of how to use Coast Combat Marine, right? Uh, so it's like some you did use them, and even to the point that they created like little like uh, manuals for them to learn how to use it, uh, but it didn't really permeate very far. So that that's interesting that um because I've actually played the Close Combat series and that it it didn't catch on. Maybe was it was it I guess um part of it i guess the the niche gameplay or or i i mean or i guess as you probably answered the question already just because the focus was on the the global war on terror that it became it became subsidiary that's that's interesting um so you're right wargaming didn't go away during the 90s during the the, uh, global war on terror but but when did the resurgence start happening um so kind of we we traced it to um a a general upswing back in like the mid, you know, 20 teens, uh, you know, and as, as Sebastian said, we couldn't really identify one specific reason, you know, except, in, you know, increased attention to the GWAT, sort of focus everybody's attention on those, those problems that were out there. Um, it's just sort of, it's ironic and it's a, it's a little sad in some ways to think that, um, it was see, it was viewed as like an either or option. Hey, we can do wargaming or we can prepare for the GWAT. When one of the purposes of doing wargaming was to, you know, met mentally prepare yourself and and your staff and your Marines, you know, for p- potential contingencies that they might face. All right, and you know you uh, do that using a wargame um, to sort of fill in time in your training and your education pipeline to go study GWAT problems. And it's 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 just ironic. It's seen, and it, we couldn't really find a good answer as to why that didn't happen. Um, you know, because again, kind of going back to the golden age, there were some identified instances where war games were specifically teed up to look at very close, uh, you know, military problems. One example we talked about in the article was uh, on the eve of Operation Desert Storm. Um, there were infantry Marines who used the the venerable you know hex encounter game, Advanced Squad Leader to conduct sort of tabletop rehearsals on how to breach prepared Iraqi defenses. And they used the mechanics of the game to look at, to develop 
uh, specific leapfrogging tactics, you know, using mortars, smoke, heavy weapons, and combined arms approach, you know, to sequent, you know, to effectively breach through these things. So, uh, you know, with increased availability of war games, especially on computers, when, you know, going into 2000s, now you're starting to get to the point everybody's got a personal computer, right? It's just, it, it's very curious that the potential tool, um, especially, and with something owned by the Marine Corps, like the close combat Marine game, was sort of put on the shelf. You're like, we got to look at the real military problem here in the GWAT. And, uh, you know, there were now more tools available than ever to look at military problems and kind of go through, you know, what if and and build yourself a, a virtual world to practice some of those things before you went in to do it for real. Um, it, this is just, it's strange. It's odd that, you know, that's why you war game is to get ready for, for actual war and conflict. And then one, when one came around, we put it on the shelf. Um, you know, but getting back to like kind of the upswing, uh, like I said, looking at sort of mid 20 teens, um, there were some bubbles of continuity. There was the case method, case method, uh, case method project at Marine Corps university, which uh, was an ongoing program for many years there using decision forcing cases uh, to, you know, again, provide a mental sandbox to improve decision-making skills. And um, kind of you're getting around about this time as well within the professional military education, you know, arena, at least uh, you had, again, sort of these, these individuals, these islands, islands of excellence who, through force of you know personality and, and the belief of those personalities and the value of it started to integrate wargaming again into as a formal part of a curricula um dr james lacy uh, at the marine corps war college was one person uh, who did this using a number of different tabletop games at the school of advanced warfighting you had dr benjamin jensen who's using the computer game command um, and, you know, to sort of look at a different problem set, uh, you know, the point was you had a few individuals doing it. Um, but then the, the real upswing sort of like, again, what, what, what drove us to write this piece in the first place was coming in 2019 when General David Berger took over as commandant, um, wargaming was all over his commandant's planning guidance. Um, very, very clear that he thought it was an important tool that was not being utilized and that uh, Marine Corps, Marine Marines in education and training and experimentation needed to go forth and do more of this. So part of, I guess, the one of the major concerns when you wrote your article is the fact that you wanted the current wargaming moment um, to stick. Uh, how do you think the Marine Corps is in a position to make it stick? What do you think it w should be needed to, to help make it stay around? Uh, so that wargaming continues to be a useful tool, both for analysis as well as, as we say on the show, getting your your sets and reps in to uh, to, to practice tactics, strategies, and operations. Right, go ahead. You want to start on that? Oh, you want to start? <laughs> yeah. Um. So I guess I'll, I'll say like, and it's as I'm out of uniform now. Um, you know, slightly different perspective, but I think um, we in the article we we sort of threw out a number of recommendations for how you could sort of get this institutional moment to endure beyond the initial enthusiasm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been a couple of years since we wrote the article. Um, and I've now been detached, from, you know, from the active duty Marine Corps for about half a year at this point. So we, we sort of had a chance to watch, you know, some of those trend lines and see where they've gone. 
And uh, I guess from my perspective, again, you know, this, this is my personal opinion, nobody else's. Um, I am, I have some cautious optimism that we may have actually planted some of the seeds. Uh, and I say we, like the royal we, right? Like the Marine Corps and the various um, institutions and individuals within it to have planted um, you know, some better seeds for success, right? Like the, I think the biggest question that we've, you know, Sebastian and I probably both had in writing this in 2021 was like, okay, we know that General Berger is going to leave the Marine Corps in 2023. Um, and, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm at the time. Will this last once those people rotate out or, you know, once those people retire? Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the, it's still an open question, right? But, but some of the things that were just getting started back when we wrote that piece I have grown. Um, so, for example, we mentioned in the piece, um, there's a right about the time that uh, retired Marine Colonel Tim Barrick was hired as a war gaming director at Marine Corps University. And um, he was sort of uh, just, you know, put in charge of a number of things, not just in PME, but also setting up the first of its kind cloud-based wargaming environment for a military service in the U.S., and uh, and he's done that right like that one that one initially initial operational capability, I think, in the winter of 2022 and the capability of that cloud based wargaming has only grown. Um, you know, it's been it's been stress tested um, through a number of tournaments in which, uh, you know, students from both U.S. and international militaries were invited to, you know, one sort of, you know, friendly competition against each other. Right. But also to stress test a cloud based system to see if. You know, we could achieve the goal of having hundreds of Marines on there at the same time using these cloud-based war games to conduct PME homework or to conduct unit type training um, or conduct professional military education. You know, so that effort is still going, you know, very strong and it's only gotten more robust since it was at initial operational capability. Um, and then this coming summer, or yeah, next summer, the uh, Marine Corps Wargaming Analysis Center, you know, now called the Neller Center after um, you know General Neller, who kind of got the ball rolling on on the groundbreaking it, it is going to open and begin its initial operational capability as well, and that's going to provide you know the you know it's the Marine Corps more Wargaming Center, but I'm I have no doubt that it'll be made available to the other services you know as as needed or as as asked for, but now you're going to have a a service level um, highly, highly resourced and high fidelity wargaming center where, um, you can bring in senior commanders and decision leaders around, you know, around into a, a very detailed, accurate virtual environment and get them to, um, you know, to, to, to play out, to stress test this, you know, the higher level plans and decisions that they have to make at the levels they are. Um, you know, so, and, you know, so between like the wargaming cloud and the wargaming center, those are pretty big institutional investments. And that they are, you know, ongoing and haven't wound up on a, a uh, you know, a cutting block somewhere, I think is indicative that there's there's a real service commitment to it um, in, in those respects. All right. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Well, as we uh, start to wrap up our interview, I appreciate you guys for coming on the show. It's been great to have you. Um, so, uh, Ian, uh, you've already uh, answered this question last time, uh, so I'll, I'll pass on to Sebastian. So, Sebastian. Um, you get home from a day of, you know, hard, hard day of work. You've been teaching students how to war game. You pour yourself a glass of whiskey and what war game are you going to play? What's your favorite war game? Oh, man. Um, I guess like the 
the smart thing to say is my own game, right? My own Latour uh, Commander War game. Uh, but um, I wouldn't. <laughs> Mainly because it, it, it shines, the game shines when you play with lots of other people. It's like a collaborative game. So it's really great if you have like six or five people to play uh, the game. Um, but recently, I've been going down uh, various rabbit holes. Um, the two games that I'm currently focused on is uh, Divided Europe by David Thompson right now, uh, which looks at sort of a influence mechanic game, um, which I which I'm finding more and more interesting of how to represent non kinetic elements, right? As a designer, I'm really sort of curious of how do we represent cyber? How do we represent sort of disinformation and influence, right? Uh, and so I'm trying to do more and more research in that regard, and that's uh, really piqued my interest recently. Um, there are a couple other games commercially that I find interesting topically-wise uh, in terms of, I mean, I really find naval and maritime warfare really interesting, so that's sort of uh, where I gravitate towards to. I gravitate, I gravitate towards the tactical and sort of um, operational level, uh, but I love playing Game of Thrones Risk with my students. Uh, it is absolutely an easy game, super easy. If you ever played Risk, it's pretty much the same mechanic, but I sort of have a Game of Thrones uh, like chrome layer on top of it, right? So there's characters and stuff, and there are a few extra elements that make it a little bit better uh, versus Risk. Um, and I love playing that game because you ever want to see a bunch of uh, A-type achiever grad students like uh, be prepared to murder each other uh, in less than three hours and four hours, um, this is the game for you, right? It's um, it's great. I get to teach them about game design. Uh, it's really dynamic and easy to learn. Um, it's a nice little gateway sort of game for that. So I love playing that with my students. I'm looking forward to doing it again with my students in the spring. So that's a long-winded answer of saying lots of games. It really depends on my mood. Uh, as a designer, I usually try to pick or play games that are either going to inspire me, teach me something new, or I'm curious about how someone has done something, right? Uh, whether it's how they did cyber attacks or how they are representing influence and persuasion or how did they do like um, uh, drones in tactical modern warfare, right? So like I, I'm always trying to learn from other people. Awesome. And uh, Ian, I've heard, you know, through the rumor mill known as LinkedIn that you have your uh, your own game that's uh, either coming out or has, has recently come out. Do you mind talking about that for a little bit? Yeah, I can hit that real quick. And, and I'd start off that I, I can blame Sebastian almost entirely for the fact that, that it, it exists or that it will exist. <laughs> um, because I, to kind of circle back to the institutional commitment, um, I, I didn't mention that uh, Sebastian's game, Littoral Commander, um, also got a fairly uh, large service commitment from on the Marine Corps University side because under the under you know Tim Barrick and the the wargaming director there, they procured copies for all of the staff academies, the enlisted schools across the Marine Corps, which is uh, which is a not insignificant number. So um, you've now got Marines, and I know Sebastian is a, you know he's a former enlisted Marine. Um, it makes him really happy that you've now got you know where staff sergeants and gunnies and sergeants are getting trained and educated. Uh, the total commander is there on the table, you know, putting sandbox for future warfighting ideas out there um, in front of them. Um, and, you know, if it, it's it's your NCOs and your staff NCOs who are, you know, at the, the pointy end of the spear. They're really making a lot of the decisions and, you know, dealing with the hard problems of, up from close and personal combat. So that the fact that they now have this game system accessible to them um, is fantastic. But it, this also leads into why I, I yeah, the Kirkham so. So I, because of, uh, you know, work on littoral commander, I started tinkering with like scenario, you know, design and adaptation of game mechanics 
to new scenarios. Um, and then I, I, I hit a point where I was like, why don't I like, let me try my own game here for a second. Um, and I sort of reached back to, uh, my younger, my much younger days of playing star Wars customizable card game. Um, and, and kind of like taking the same, um, approach that Sebastian took to littoral commander, which is, you know, how can we offer a war game tool that is accessible um, relatively simple and has a very low, like, you know, overhead to be able to play it. Um, you know, so littoral commander, you can play, all you need is a light source and a flat table, right. And maybe something to keep the dice from flying everywhere, but you can play it basically anywhere. Right. So I, I kind of took that same approach. Um, and, uh, and I thought I was like, I, what if I could put a card, like the, my favorite thing about the star Wars card game and a lot of different like deck construction games is, everything you need in the game is in like a stack of 60 or so cards. Um, so I, I sort of took, you know, took my childhood inspiration. Um, a lot of the lessons I learned on scenario design, working um, on littoral commander and other things at the Kulak center. And, you know, just kind of in my own time over the last 18 months, started trying to build a deck construction game about future warfare. Um, and it's now, uh, it's now available for pre-order actually through the same company that published Sebastian's littoral commander. Um, so I, I think it's great now that this company has a couple of options out there for Marines to go and get their wargaming on. Um, and, uh, I've also, it, it, it's an experiment for me in using, um, AI imagery as well to, to make, you know, game graphics, um, something I've never used before, but it's obviously becoming, you know, more and more proliferated. And, uh, it, it definitely gives the game kind of like an, this eerie, like, um, you know, it looks it looks kind of real, but there's like sort of an ethereal feel to it that I really really like, um, which is what I'm kind of trying to capture in the game. It's you know like this is a game about the future, and the future is it, it, it's unreal. You know, it's it's nebulous and and changing, and um, you know it's kind of what I want the game to capture. So, um, yeah. So the the LinkedIn is true. Yeah, it, it exists in, in prototype, and it'll be in production hopefully next year. All right. Well, awesome. Well, again, gentlemen, they can come on our show to all of our Marines out there and other listeners. Go ahead, get your reps and sets in, get wargaming and uh, take this knowledge that you learn from to make sure it stays institutional. Until next time. A common axiom is that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Another axiom is that we sweat in peace so that we don't bleed in war. Here at the Marine Corps Association, we fully understand both. That is why we offer through our professional development page on our website, a comprehensive catalog of battle studies, tactical and ethical decision games, and war games to ensure that not only do we learn from the past, but we embrace the thoughts and decisions that influence the outcomes of some of the greatest actions of the Marine Corps. We have tools and techniques that will enhance both unit training as well as enable comprehensive self-study. Check out all that the Marine Corps Association has to offer on our website. Go to mca-marines.org forward slash professional development. That's mca-marines.org forward slash professional development. And get your reps and sets in. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding. But you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC Retired, Andy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.